I, I would say it's not just that I've enjoyed singing them as they are and sing and, you know, teaching them and so on. But in my theatre work, they've been an amazing inspiration for making work. And I've created work and also for the creative way of develop, developing an ensemble when I'm working with actors or with student actors, creating an ensemble through actually using these songs. Welcome to Voices of the Ancestors, where we explore Georgian polyphonic songs and the women who sing them. Hello, the voices today are Holly Taylor Zuntz and Susan Thompson. And our guest, well, she really made us shake up this episode for you. Our conversation was so wide-ranging and emotional. There were tears and laughter from all three of us. She's done such a lot in her career that we've been energetically editing our chat, pulling out the very best bits for you. Our guest today is Joan Mills. She's the voice director at CPR, that's the Centre for Performance Research in Aberystwyth, Wales, and she's well known for curating the CPR's Giving Voice Festival. Oh yeah, that's a festival I would have loved to have been at. So many experts in the field of voice, people like Kristin Linklater, Helen Chadwick, and of course, Joan's a big part of the Natural Voice Network. She's worked closely with people like Frankie Armstrong there. And of course, some of our listeners will know of Joan because she's the editor of the book 99 Georgian Songs, uh, which she worked on with Edisha Garakanidze and Joseph Jordania. Uh, two ethnomusicologists who you'll hear about in the episode. And there's her theatre work, which I was really interested in, influenced by Grotowski and companies like Gardjanitse, Theatre Tsar, Roy Hart Theatre. And then there's all her teaching too. Oh, yes. I would love to have been a student taught by Joan. She's taught voice and performance at the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama and Aberystwyth University and was a theatre director at Royal Court Theatre and at Theatre Powys. She's currently co-leading the Georgian choir, Kakali, as well as singing with her trios, Bright Field and Papermates. Now, if you want to hear everything Joan said, in the order she said it, we will be releasing the full uninterrupted interview as a piece of exclusive content for our Kofi monthly subscribers. So for more information about that, you can go to ko-fi.com forward slash Voices of the Ancestors or just drop us a line at voicesofancestors at gmail.com and we'll help you access it. But here we're just going to hear some golden nuggets of our conversation. So let's dive straight in with Joan talking about tradition and innovation. You know, this Voices of the Ancestors title is very interesting to me. I've always thought that phrase was very, very important. Um, I, I know that I think it was Sheila Chandra's CD is called Voices of the Ancestors. Many years ago, I bought this beautiful CD of Celtic, Indo-Celtic connection. And she writes about it very beautifully on that CD. Um, and I think that, you know, 
when I listened to the podcast that Magda gave the other week, and she talked about Voices of the Ancestors as being a bridge. And I thought this was very beautiful, very exact. It's perfect. Um, and it made me think, too, about something I've been uh, – I've thought about, too, which is how it does definitely connect you to the past. These ancient songs connect you to the past. But for me, and I'd say certainly – this this again relates to the CPR's whole philosophy, which is about tradition and innovation. All of their work has been about that, how tradition leads to innovation. And so I feel it's not just a bridge to the past, but the voices of the ancestors take us to the future. Mm. And that's why it's very important that we do share these uh, these songs, especially with young people because they are our future and they should be allowed to, you know, step on that bridge. Um, innovation is really important. You cannot live in the past. And recently I interviewed Sam Lee, the wonderful British traditional singer, Sam Lee, and he spoke about his heritage, his legacy from Stanley Robertson, the wonderful traditional singer who taught him. And he spoke about tending the flame, you know, this notion of tending the flame not reviving the ashes, you know, or messing about in the air. It's not about ashes. Mm. You know, it's about dead things. It's about the living tradition. And so these songs, and I have to say other songs, of course, that I, you know, I mean, I, there are other songs I'm very, but nothing has touched me more than the Georgian songs, I would say. But these Georgian songs, they do, they kind of link us back into very ancient uh, uh, performance, song, and and ways of being with the voice, and they take us to the future. But this sense of a continuum, this sense that behind us are the past singers and ahead of us are the future singers. And I'm just on that little path somewhere. So this is like a bridge, but it's also like a wheel. It's like a strange turning. And that has a strong effect on you uh, of feeling not only very aware of them, the past, and you know, those some of these really old singers, especially from the traveller community, that Sam Lee knows, for example, they talk very much about this idea of the maisy or the maisy, it's pronounced different ways, which is this moment when they're singing and they're singing one of the old songs in the old way and then they know that those singers are in the room and they really feel that. And I have to say that... You know, there are times when I am teaching and singing, and I'm singing particularly with my, with my choirs, whatever. It's very often Shen Harvenahi, and I feel—I know it sounds strange, but I feel that she's in the room with us, and he's happy. I have to say, <laughs> I always feel that he's delighted because. You know, and he doesn't care when we make mistakes or fail or mispronounce something. He doesn't care. He's just 
pleased and I see that wonderful smile of his, you know, that there it is, we're, we're doing this. So this sense of the ancestors or those that have gone before, um, you know, are somehow helping us along. And I know, and I know it's a kind of strange notion in a way, especially for someone who says, well, I don't really believe in an afterlife or, you know, from a sort of truly religious point of view but I do have a sense that everything we do in the world is affecting everything else I've always really felt that since I was a very small child and I remember asking somebody but you know in the universe what's the other side of it and the person laughing at me and I say no 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 you have to understand if it if it's like this and then there's all those galaxies and all those stars but but they've got to be inside something else no no one explained anything to me about it. You know, we have to go to quantum physics to get anywhere near it. So in a way, we are all atoms made up of other atoms. And when I'm dead, and I often say to my students, listen, you better do this properly because I'm depending on you because you are the future. I'm going to be dead soon. And I go, oh, Joan, please. And I go, well, it's true. Yes. But I, I mean, I didn't do that when I was perhaps pre-40, but I do it a lot now because I want them to feel that responsibility in a good way and not, not too much pressure. But I say to them, what you do is so going to matter. You know, I've got every faith in you. I'm good. And I said, and if you're not good at this and you don't carry this on and you don't go and sing this song, I'm going to haunt you <laughs> a bit. <laughs> so I mean hopefully that's not too threatening a version of the voices of the ancestors coming back but I think yes it is about this sense that if you're going to make something new I think you really do have to understand take as an example something wonderful from the past you can't do everything life's too short but we wouldn't get through it all but even one thing that you really go into and think well what were those people about that did that in the past it doesn't matter if it's painting or it's making pottery or singing or writing something just don't leave the past behind say well that doesn't matter it's all finished it's not it's influencing everything that's happening now and therefore really as i say not treating it like ashes as you know, Sam and Stanley Robertson said, it's not about ashes, it's about the flame that we all pass on into the future. And uh, you know, I, I'm delighted to if I've been part of that, and you are obviously part of that. And so my being in this podcast, you know, is, is an example of this because there are people there, you know, you're younger than me, but you are you are the future. So, you know, I want you to do these podcasts and I want you to be very good at what is, otherwise I'll haunt you. You know, it'll be that again. <laughs> I'll appear on the airwaves going, well, that wasn't a very good podcast. Do a better one. <laughs> well, hopefully not, because, uh, you know, if we take Edish's example, oh, I would never say, do it. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was okay. But reminder <laughs> that, you know, it's not about how perfect it is it's just about the fact that we're doing it and we're enjoying doing it and we're spending time on these songs and that's going to make it, it would make him smile so thank you for that yeah. <laughs> oh he'd be delighted I mean the, the fact that this is going out and people maybe anyone could access it I mean and you know for me when I listened to Magda who spoke so beautifully 
the other week on this podcast to hear her voice and to see her picture there and coming across the airwaves to me uh, and knowing that you could go and of course you know I want to encourage all my the people singing my choir to listen to these podcasts and hear these glimpses into you know how how other people are enjoying and and working with these songs it's very very important but i was very struck by something holly that uh, you and susan and susan you sent me i think susan actually sent me which was this translation of the article by edisha garakanitsa about education and how children learn it's so fascinating because uh, I learned a great deal from Edisha about not just about the Georgian songs and how wonderful they are and loved singing them, but the moment I saw him teaching, I was immediately both touched and um, I, I really delighted to see the way he worked. And also, I, this sounds strange, but it felt as if it confirmed something in me that I had been doing but wasn't really – I suppose I didn't have other people around who felt the same as me, and especially actually in a theatre conservatory where a lot of people really felt that one size should fit all. Otherwise, it wasn't fair. The teaching wasn't fair somehow. And, you know, it had to be – it didn't matter who was teaching that particular type of voice work. And somebody actually said that in a staff meeting. It doesn't matter who's doing it. It should be the same. Wow. And they were also saying, yeah, absolutely. I had a huge argument in that. Well, I tried not to shout, but I was very annoyed in that staff meeting. I remember it distinctly. And trying to explain that it's incredibly different. Each body voice auditory system that was working with another human being, it will be different. Mm-hmm. And you can't standardize these things. So I was, you know, uh, I was always very aware of this and how individual it was, both between me and each student and between me and each group Mm. and so on. And the methodology in another person's body and voice would be different, even though it seemed to be similar. And uh, anyway, there was just, just something about the way he did this and taught this that I thought was really inspirational and, um, you know, at the same time I recognized it. So I felt very glad and uh i think that you know teaching a kind of in the essence in the way in a way what it's all about is that allowing people to absorb and listen and actually to absorb this is the other phrase i often use i've used it with my students for years i use it with the choir i say no no we don't know this song because we haven't absorbed it fully in other words it's like um it needs to become part of your whole body and soul before you really know it. Yeah. You can't just listen and by rote, as Edisha said, you know, learn by rote. Yes. Now, in the next section, Joan talks about using Georgian songs in theatre and theatre training, which I was excited to hear about because my background is in theatre. I'm an actor and theatre maker. And when I was training in Gardzianice in Poland, I was introduced to Georgian songs and I was just completely blown away and fascinated. 
And later that year, I went to Georgia. And of course, I fell in love with the country and the folk songs. And here, Joan talks about theatre being one of the ways we can pass folklore on to younger generations. And they do stimulate innovation. And certainly, I I would say it's not just that I've enjoyed singing them as they are and sing and you know teaching them and so on, but in my theatre work, they've been an amazing inspiration for making work, and I've created work, and also for the creative way of develop, developing an ensemble when I'm working with actors or with student actors, creating an ensemble through actually using these songs. So the actual process of learning them and very much in the way Edish speaks about in the article you mentioned very much in the way of really allowing young people to develop that also develops common it develops a kind of sense of community like a family for that production we become a family we become a little village and we, we, we are full of commensality. We even eat together in that sense. And people want to sing together. And I can tell you that some of those processes have been the best processes in my life. They've just been extraordinary. And sometimes they've involved students and my community choirs together. I've made a number of theatre pieces where 16 students work with 16 members of Heartsong or The Enthusiasts, that's another choir of mine, and have made this theatre work together. And the respect that they gain across the age gap, the love, the shared love of the songs, the shared love of the process of rehearsing and fine-tuning and absorption makes an extraordinary bond so that actually the parting at the end of those productions has been heartbreaking, unbelievably heartbreaking. People wept and wept. (laughs) So something has happened. And I would say, and I know, because those students and members of Heartsong and enthusiasts and Kakali have often mentioned these things. It was so extraordinary doing that production. But that's why it's keyed into something that's in these songs, without a doubt, and their power. Yeah. And now you're making me go when you <laughs> talk about it being so linked to ensemble and theatre. And no, in a good way, in a good way, because I've had that experience too. And that's how I came to Georgian songs. And I think yes. it's about... it. It must be something about um, it's awakening something in us as humans as well. It must be because these very ancient songs, you know, we're, we don't have Georgian ancestors, but there's something no. in them that's that's waking up this um, community spirit within us. And it's when you use it, um, either in a theatre piece or just in a in training to bring a group together. It's um, yes. it's it can be really powerful and really magical, and I guess that's also what you were saying about passing it on to younger generations. That can be a way of doing it. Yes, theatre. Absolutely, yes, it is, and it, it's it's um, you know, it's certainly something that I've found as a fascinating journey. I've been very lucky, really, to be in a situation teaching in a theatre department at university or several universities to be able to do that kind of work. Um, but it's it's very, very powerful. And um, the, the confidence that it gives young people, the sense of belonging. And I, I, the trouble is, well, I, I think it's related to the fact that a lot of that doesn't exist in society anymore. 
you know, it's it's we don't. And actually, of course, in the UK, really, our ancient traditions are solo traditions. It's true in Wales. People think of Wales as the land of song and harmony. That's a 19th century thing and later i don't disparage it but i'm just saying but all the old songs and the old songs in welsh are solo songs so you know we don't have that uh, and it and they're incredibly beautiful and ornamented and very special but but we don't we don't really have that deep-seated uh, harmony tradition in the uk and i wonder if it's a sort of thing that's sort of uh, hmm, it's hard to explain but it's as if we really all humans do long for harmony, for some kind of harmony. They're aware of harmony and dissonance. It's in the world. So when it appears in songs, it seems right. And it certainly does mean something to do, it make, make a big difference to how a community bonds, I think. So when these students meet this, that sense of being floating free and nobody quite knowing who you are, no sense of being particularly in a place is suddenly uh, overcome because suddenly you do have your place. You have exactly your part in the whole and your, your connection with others. And it's all about support. I mean, the lovely ways when you work in this way that I'm talking about, um, that, that people learn to be supportive of each other, not to accept anything, you know, oh, well, you tried, so that's fine. No, not at all. It's not right. The student will be saying, no, no, we haven't got this right. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. No, no, you were a bit flat on that bit. No, I didn't. But it's loving and supportive. And the, and everyone has their part to play. And also, not everything depends on you. What a lovely thing when you sing and it's not all depending on you. Mm -hmm. You know that you're just part of something. And that's an incredible feeling of security and love. Of course, with these songs also, something very special about them, I know that sometimes when I start to sing, I have no idea what I'm going to sing next until I'm doing it. And I read this exact thing said on a, on a CD uh, by, I think they're called the Georgians. I think they used to be called the Journalists, that, that ensemble. That group, there's somebody written very well. I think it's on my, one of my CDs. And he says, when I stand up, I have no idea what I'm going to do till the others start doing it. <laughs> you don't because actually the second you hear one band of and again and she really spoke about this but I didn't quite understand at the beginning so if you hear those three notes you know where the next three notes are going to go you just know uh, and that's really fascinating yeah. uh, when that happens that's what we call locking in the you know the the sound is locked in it's a very extraordinary feeling. And, and I've heard time and time again when I'm teaching and somebody's got it, they're going, wow, this is so weird because I thought I must be wrong because it was so easy and I couldn't hear myself, mm. all of that. I couldn't hear yourself because you're actually in the sound. So the person's no longer aware of themselves. I'm singing. They're listening and being in well, the song. Well, exactly, and that's exactly that's where you want to get unusual. to with theatre and improvising, isn't it? Like you want yes. to not be in your own head all you have to do is think, not be in your head. My friends are great. I'm just going to be with them and they'll know what to do and we'll all know what to do together. So actually that's, sorry, this is me having a slight epiphany here. Like George and polyphonic songs are really such a great example of what you search for in playing games in theatre and improvisation um, in that way. Exactly. They precisely 
uh, are a kind of um, microcosm of what you mm. want. So if they, and that's why when they're used in training, as you're working on a production, it has a very strong effect on the production. So that was my kind of light bulb moment. And I'm still thinking about it now because for my dissertation, when I was at uni, I researched the connection between Georgian songs and play in theatre, playing games, and how they link to gender constructs. And I was influenced a lot by Nino Tishvili, who's written on the subject of gender in Georgian polyphony. Anyway, I, I guess I was thinking about play in a performance context, um, but what Joan says about training really made a lot of sense to me. In fact, it was when I was creating that show that I got in touch with Mass Binzelli, the Georgian choir in London, to see if anyone wanted to get involved with it. And that's where I met you, Susan. Yes, and I remember you got a bit more than you expected. I think you came to a rehearsal and thought you were just coming along to a community choir, but it was one of those rehearsals that moved on and spread into an evening supra with delicious Georgian food and toasting, and there you got the whole backstory, starting with a man called Edisha Garakinidze. And here, Joan tells us how it all started. Because it is a rather strange story. It's nothing to do with singing. Originally, it was to do with a project that my husband was directing. Uh, uh, I should explain the CPR did a lot of projects were about juxtaposition. And in fact, the Giving Voice project is developed on that model later. But the, the, the projects would be things where you would put together, um, I don't know, travel, tourism and identity or something. You know, there would be interesting collisions. This one was performance, food and cookery. Um, and it's actually a, an area of research that my husband's extremely interested in and, you know, has developed hugely over the years. And again, it's very early. This is, be I mean, now it's a very well-known subject. It had never been heard of pretty well, I think, when he began doing that. So in 1994, he created one of these projects. They were called Points of Contact um, uh, series. And uh, so it had all sorts of things like, you know, wonderful people like Bobby Baker, wonderful performance artist, sort of baking a whole, I think she baked actually a Viking set of armour and wore it. You know, <laughs> that was one incident in the project. But Richard wanted to have an, an interesting, he always had a banquet of some sort at the end, some kind of feast or banquet or event for the delegates. This time it seemed obvious that what he should have is a Georgian feast really. He'd, he'd got Dara Goldstein's book, The Georgian Feast. Um, and, you know, he's an avid reader of books on cookery and recipes and so on. Um, and then by chance, he met Nigel Watson, who was a director, who's a friend of ours. He's, he's a director friend of ours in Wales. And he'd just come back, the, I think maybe very recently from Georgia, maybe the year before. And he traveled a lot and just why he'd gone to Georgia, I don't know. He just wanted to. And he was in Tbilisi and he was at the Conservatoire going to Edish's lectures. He was sitting in the freezing cold. There was no heating. I mean, things were pretty dire at this point, as you know, in Tbilisi, um, following all the strife and the difficulties. And he was sitting in freezing cold. With it. And in fact, uh, in the introduction to 99 Jordan Songs, Edisha describes this beautifully in his introduction, this strange um, British man <laughs> sitting in an overcoat listening to his lectures in the freezing cold. So... Nigel said, oh, I know just the person that can help you set this up. And Richard said, really? He said, yes. Actually, I know two people. He said, um, 
Yes, Edith Shigarakanitsa and Joseph Jordania. They're at the Conservatoire, the Folk Conservatoire in Tbilisi, and I can get in touch with them. So he gave us their contact details somehow. I don't know. I guess we wrote in those days. I'm not sure. Um, and we were able to arrange it. It was difficult, very difficult, to get the visa, visas for them, to get the flights, to sort it out. Edisha had been traveling to Germany and he'd been doing some teaching there um, uh, in collaboration with an ethnomusicologist there, but uh, he'd not been to the UK, um, nor had Joseph I, at that time. Anyway, we invited them, they came, They and in the meantime, they said, well, what we really need is a choir of 25 people to sing the songs uh, between the courses. So Richard asked me if I would get together, obviously because I sing and I was teaching voice and I, I know a lot of people and had been singing, for example, with Frankie Armstrong and with Venice Manley and other people, Helen Chadwick. Helen was a member of the CPR's company. She was in the performance group of uh, CPR for a, a while, uh, quite a while. So, uh, yes, so I did. Um, meanwhile, Richard got together the chef who would make all of the I think it was 13 courses for the feast. Um, and by the time Edisha arrived and Joseph, we had to get, I had 25 people. 11 of them were my students. They were first year students in my first year class, the very sort of class I described earlier, who'd never heard of this in their lives, knew nothing about it, but they liked working with me and thought it would probably be rather good fun. And they said, okay, we'll do it. And the others were people I knew, some people who'd been, uh, to giving voice and I'd got to know and I was already running a little workshop um, class of my own called Heart Song in the college in the evening. So, for example, there were all sorts of people like I remember Graham Dodd. Graham worked for BT. He was for British Telecom. He was nothing to do with singing at all, really, but joined my workshop class and immediately said, I'll do it. I think he took the week off work to do it, wow. actually. So this strange motley group turned up at Chapter Arts Centre in a studio there and we met, uh, you know, I think I'd met him the night before, but then we all gathered, Edisha, Joseph, they were there. The first thing they asked for is, well, actually, could you, um, we, we would, perhaps it would help people to have some of the music written, so we'll, we'll give that. Is there a place to photocopy? And uh, we said, yes, of course. And they wrote the score out from memory just jotted it down as we were going, if you see what I mean. And I was pretty impressed by that. And then we 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 got into the space and we were all very excited. And uh, they were kind of dealing with that and I got someone to help them deal with that. So I said to, I remember saying to Edisha and Joseph, would you like me to, um, so I was thinking, what do we do for a minute? Well, there's a little bit of a hiatus. So I offered to do a warm-up and they looked very surprised <laughs> at me. Warm-up? That I said, yeah, you know, because a lot of these, they, perhaps it's a bit cold and they, it was January, by the way. So uh, they went, oh, yeah. And Joseph went, oh, yes, good, good. Right. So we did. And they looked a bit bemused while they finished off writing the score. I warmed everyone's voices up. And then we began. And actually, they were just, he, he I mean, well, he the first thing I noticed was that he did actually what I'd always done, which is never teach a whole great big line. He taught a small phrase, just a bar almost, I think. The first song, maybe one bar. And I can, I mean, I can feel the hairs going on at the back of my neck now. 
um, of just that bar in the fifth and the fourth or whatever it was, I think. It was either, the song was either Erechles Maraval Jamie, I think it probably was actually. Um, and it was followed by Chela. And I just know that I, you know, they just introduced that and just got the three voices doing it. And I just found it extraordinarily exciting immediately. And and this after, and then he'd do a bit more of phrase and a bit more. I noticed how encouraging he was. I noticed that whenever he spoke to us, if we were sitting, he crouched. And if you see photographs, even in the 99 Georgian Songbook, we there are several pictures in there where you see uh, one where he's with some children and he's on, you know, he's crouched right down to be at the same level. He doesn't tower over everybody. I had students in that group who really, one guy had a terrible, terrible problem with intonation. My belief in everybody being allowed to sing and everything, of course I wanted him to be there, but I knew it could be difficult. He was so lovely. And I remember him saying to him, he said, uh, oh, uh, you know, and again, this was an off, often through translation. He would be in German and Helen would translate. Um, but he said, uh, so you, you're, are you having difficulty? You're having difficulty with this? And the poor boy said, yeah, yes, yes. And oh, I know, I know I'm not really in the right place. And he said, oh, right, good. Sing louder. <laughs> and immediately again, I thought, yes, because I'd always said, to my students, you know, if you're not sure, you need to be louder because then you can feel the resonance in the body, not just hear it, and you hear yourself in relation to other people. That's the only way you can tune. But he just got him to do it straight away. And, um, you know, really by the end, they don't sound too bad at all. It's amazing. But it, it's and it gave such confidence. He gave people confidence. And he was so kind in his teaching. And not then, but later in a, the first Giving Voice workshop that he gave, somebody piped up very near the beginning of Edisha teaching and said, oh, excuse me, can I just say something? And he said, yes. And, and then he said, I'm afraid there's a mistake here because uh, this isn't quite right because um, they're singing in with one flat and there's some people singing here with two flats. <laughs> and Edisha now, a not such kind, good teacher, might have felt rather offended. I remember I flinched when this person did this, thinking, hang on, you're telling the guy who collected the song and notated it, <laughs> excuse me. But he just said, oh, excuse me, but do you sing a lot? You know, you must sing a great deal. And the man said, uh, uh, yeah, yes, I do, actually. He said, oh, you're in choirs. He said, yeah. He said, I thought so. You must be very musical, I think, because you would expect that if you were a musical person, of course. And that's why you think that. Now, but actually in Georgian, and then he explained. Well, there you go. Of course, this person was completely disarmed and said, oh, how interesting. Oh, I never knew that. No, nothing confrontational, so kind, so encouraging, and so gently done and charming, but not in a sort of, I mean, charming because it's so human, such a brilliant teacher. And I think it taught me a great deal about, it reminded me how patient you have to be. Um, and also, you know, again, I think, I hope I've always done this in my own work now. I think I was, but I think it gave me confidence. Small steps, a little something's very simple, and then you build and you build. You don't demand. And having said that, I should say I am told by my students, I am so demanding. They always say, God, you're so demanding, Joan. But that's true. 
But they always say, but I learn so much. And actually, it's because I have very high standards. I ex- I think anyone can do pretty well anything, but not if they don't work at it. But if you want them to work at it and you want to be critical, you must be helping them to achieve that. You must be supportive and you must never lie to them. You have to be absolutely honest, uh, but kind and uh, let let their development flourish like something truly growing gently. Sorry, and so a long answer to that. <laughs> no, it's a truly beautiful answer and really encapsulated for me why. Uh, so my background in all of this is is coming to this from somebody who had learned a song from one of those people who had learned directly from from Edisha. So so secondhand. But my feeling was that the reason the the Georgian repertoire spread, there was something about Edisha's manner and his ability to teach Mm. that enabled other people to feel comfortable, empowered, and wanted to to pass it on because it seemed... Yes. Yeah. Yes, you're right. I mean, he thoroughly encouraged me to... To you know, well, also there was something very. I mean, I remember being extremely moved on one very small. And you have to understand, we were working through either translation or very small amounts of English at this point, or whatever. But he actually said something to me about. Um, well, it's making me feel it now. I mean, I was just. No one had ever really said you're a singer, Joan. No one. Because I grew up in a, you know, working class family. I was bright and went to grammar school, but all the kids who were really good singers had proper teachers and they knew how to read music properly. I was, if anything, I've always just been from the oral folk tradition and all my early singing was from that. Songs my grandmother taught me uh, and songs that I learned gradually. And then songs I actually learned from the Joan Byers folk song book that my auntie from Canada gave me when she also gave me an acoustic guitar when I was 14 or 15. But anyway, in essence, it wasn't just about technically knowing about it. What he meant was in your heart, in your soul, the most important thing is that you sing. And I was moved to tears by that because I had sort of denied that a little bit and or never really quite acknowledged that that's how I feel about it. And he was the person that that made me feel that. And I think he did that for a lot of people. And some of the people that went on to teach after learning from him and Joseph, uh, uh, but I think particularly from Edisha because of, especially that there's just something about his method. He uh, then, and at Giving Voice afterwards, subsequently where he came back twice, and uh, also a workshop that we did here in Aberystwyth with him uh, the year before he died, Um those people had a sort of recognition from him that allowed them to feel it's okay for me to also share this. It won't be the same as a Georgian doing it, but it'll be as good as they can get until they get to that stage of being able to learn directly from a Georgia, from a Georgian or in Georgia. Mm. Yes, you're right. Maybe that's the success behind 
Georgian songs being spread in the UK um, because a lot of the Georgian choirs now are sort of community choirs and there's no audition to get in. And in fact, the way that you described it, having some kind of musical background or education can even be a hindrance sometimes because you absolutely rotation when actually that doesn't have anything to do with the notes that you're actually singing in a Georgian song. Not at all. And also the tuning is often very different. of the context of the songs came across because you were saying that some of the songs were sung by a trio of men, some of the songs by women <coughs> and whether there was, I mean I know in the early days that there, you know, you were being taught through translation so some of the detail doesn't always come across but I just wondered what did come across. Well um, a great deal um, partly because we were so curious and we asked questions. People were not just content just to try and just... I mean, I think the quality of the people there helped. Uh, we asked and um, it wasn't just that. They they wanted us to know. So we looked on the map where Georgia was. I have decided even know where Georgia was. I, I freely admit that I'd not really I ever thought about Georgia in my life. I thought it was the Georgian period in history uh, the first time. <laughs> first time somebody taught me a Georgian song, I thought <laughs> they were going to start singing a really old song. And then they started singing another language. And I was like, what? Yeah, that's strange. <laughs> yes. Well, no, they did. And they they each time said where, the, where it was from, the region, why it was sung and so on. So from the beginning, that was very well understood. But that's why, in fact, Joseph, um, sorry, <clears throat> excuse me. That's why. What's important is that's why Edisha then approached CPR about uh, the book that he wanted to create. Because actually, after he'd been to us uh, several times, and now this was in 1996, and he was at Giving Voice, we sat down together, and he spoke to Richard and I, and said that he would like um, he would like to create a workbook for Western singers, for singers in the West, and he felt it was important because now he'd started also to be invited to other places in the UK you know Helen and for example had invited him in Venice and so on uh, he realised people really did want to know what the song was about, what it meant where it's from, who would have sung it is it still sung, all of these questions and also some help with you know, pronunciation and so forth so he spoke to us about it and said that he'd like to do this, he knew that Richard was um, the CPR was beginning a publishing ha- um well actually he didn't really know that but we were at the time we'd started our own publishing um house black mountain press um but we were um always involved in creating good documentation and booklets about the work that we did and so on richard knew immediately this would be very difficult to get this published in this country by a big publisher and not he immediately said look we'll do it we'll do it for you and so it began. Um, and it was for just the reason you've said, that people really wanted to know these things. Um, and we felt that was very important because, you know, I, in a way, the, 
whole of the CPR's work is about cultural access. It is about uh, people understanding each other's cultures, not just looking at them like tourists, but really understanding something about it and making connections across performance. Uh, so, in fact, that's what we did. So we began it and uh, we were working on it together Um uh, he'd um, Edisha wrote the introduction and sent had a sort of translation done and sent to me. And this was all very slow because it, it's not like it would be now. It would be so easy, you know, to just send it on the internet. But no, it wasn't like that at all. I think it arrived in the post, and and then I had to edit that because it it was I'm afraid not. It wasn't a very good translation, so I had to do a lot of guessing and thinking about what he'd said and reworking and just correcting the grammar and stuff and sent it back and so on. And then in actually 1997, uh, Edisha came to the UK and he came to us in Aberystwyth and I organised a workshop with my choir and other people and he stayed with us for a few days and by then, he was speaking some English. Uh, it was still all a bit slow. We had to use a German dictionary where he would uh, work out slowly what it was in English. He'd use a German to English dictionary to help, you know. Anyway, we spent all this time together. And by that time, we'd, we'd also moved on to what would be included, all the different parts of the book, you know, what he felt was important for people to know, which sort of songs we thought would be good in it. And I was making lists and notes on all of this. Um, and then he uh, he left. And it was a lovely time, by the way, I must say. I was very glad and, you know, I'm so delighted that we had that bit of time together. Um, there were so many nuances about things that I learned from that. Uh, I also have a little tiny thing from that that's always been very useful for me when I'm speaking to people uh, when they're worried about pronunciation and so on, because obviously I don't speak Georgian. Um, and by the way, Edisha, I just want to say one thing about his teaching. He absolutely believed that if you started to really learn the melody, the harmonies, the lines of the parts and the harmony, and you perceived that and you began to feel that, and then you got that, everything else would follow. He did not spend a lot of time. In fact, he made deliberately simplified versions of the words. So, you know, it might have five letters in it. And he'd say, yes, but when we sing it, it sounds like it's just this, you know. And and to be fair, if you listen to recordings, you'll hear that very often. But actually, he uh, he um, really want, knew that if you really loved the song, eventually you would get better and better at the pronunciation. But he didn't want that to put people off at the beginning. And not everybody thinks that in Georgia. I know, I know, because having been to the polyphony conference and so on, I've heard people complain bitterly about people not wanting to learn the words properly. But, and, you know, I've also seen ways of teaching that people have done where they teach the whole of the top part and then the whole of the second part and the whole of the... And so people are sitting there for ages not doing anything. This was not how he taught. And actually, while he was with us, we had a dog, a black Labrador, which he, he, he liked a lot, and it, it, it would come up and 
you know, try to sit on him and things. And uh, he asked, of course, he said, what is its name? And I said, Smudge. And he said, oh, Smudge, Smudge. And he, he tried to look it up, so he looked it up, and he spent ages going through dictionaries and working and coming up with possible what it might might be. Fleck, spot. Is it spot? No, it's not that. I tried to explain what it was, and eventually he found the right word. He went, ah, smudger. <laughs> <laughs> and I have never, we howled. Our dog was called smudger. <laughs> <laughs> ever since that for till it died that dog was called that and actually if ever I'm really stuck and I'm saying some no but really I think you need to sort of bounce off that consonant it's a more important that it'll really help you I I just remind I just tell my choir all know the smudgest <laughs> because it helps it mm. helps but that's just one tiny thing anyway but then of course sadly he um, left and um, as we know the following year very sadly um, he and uh, most of his family died, and the the then we were left. I was absolutely reeling when I heard what had happened. This terrible accident that had taken him and his wife and his daughter from us. And I, but my husband and I, Rich and I, you know, within a few hours, really said, we absolutely have to finish the book. It's absolutely imperative. Mm. We gradually began to contact everybody we thought could help with it. Um, and then the following year, um, when, or, well, in fact, it was that year, I think, or it might have been the following year, no, it was that year, later in the year, um, when Machebi came to Giving Voice, uh, we were able to have a conference with them and with people like Caroline Bithell, Helen Chadwick, um, and so on. Um, to discuss, uh, to try and say, if you've got any copies of music that he taught you at your workshops, please send them to us so that we know what else would have probably been in the book. And gradually we agreed on the 99 songs. He was absolutely insistent. That was Edish's title, by the way, not ours. Yeah. He said from the start it would be called, because I said, will it have a title? And he said, 99 Georgian songs. <laughs> and when we did the revised and expanded edition, Joseph said, well, it really now needs to be 111. I said, no, no, <laughs> no, we'll just call. I said, I can't, A, it's so difficult to say, but B, it's Edish's book, really. I mean, Joseph has contributed to it massively. We would have never been able to do it without Joseph Giordania mm. and everything he did for his, you know, his friend, his colleague. But, but no, it's still 99 Georgian songs in brackets, the revised and expanded edition, <laughs> but that's because that's Edisha's title. But that book, I think, was what Edisha wanted. I very much hope so. It's for the beginner. You know, we've had other people say, oh, well, when you revise it, you need to do this, you need to put this in George, you need to do that. You need... No, I resisted it all. I said, yes, we'll revise and improve everything we can. But this is not a book for people who are now travelling regularly to Georgia and working and doing things. <laughs> Write your own book. <laughs> <laughs> this is Edish's book. 
you know, if you want a more sophisticated book that's for uh, high level learners, good. Mm. This this is a way in for so many people. And hopefully the little CD that my little group, Bright, my own ensemble, Bright Field made, I know has helped tremendously my choir. Um, it's very simplified, but it's a way in for people who don't read music at all. And the book, I know, has spread, well, we've sold it throughout the world, quite literally, and where we've just done a reprint uh, two weeks ago of the oh, revised wow. book. Yes, so it's on its second reprint, or maybe it's third, actually, the second book. And a very important aspect of this was right from the start, the point of doing it wasn't just that, but we did want it to raise even a, a little money for the for the family, for, for uh, Gigi, Edisha's son, who survived this terrible accident that killed the rest of his family, um, and uh, we, we knew that he, you know, he was only seventeen when that happened. So it provided a little bit money towards him. And in those days, because of the difference in currency rating, even that little was worth a lot in Georgia, mm -hmm. and it still goes to uh, 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 Magda and Ilya. So mm -hmm. this is Edisha's daughter-in-law and grandson. Um, and that always was the reason, part of the reason for doing it, because it was Edish's book, and we wanted to make sure that uh, the family received um, the the funds from it. Mm. But I think it has been very helpful for choirs all over the world. Uh, we know, and people write to us and, and uh, you know say how much they use it, and uh, it's his legacy. And um, you know, I feel uh, if I've done nothing else in my life. Um, I think uh, contributing to these songs, uh, being heard and sung by people throughout the world is something. Um, having Richard and I having helped Edisha do what he wanted to do, which is to make this workbook for Western singers and spread the word and give people that support that you've mentioned, you know, to know more about the songs, where each one comes from, etc. This is something. So I'm, you know, I'm content that that's something to have done in a lifetime. Wow. Well, I'm going to say directly to you, Joan, thank you, because I am one of the people who, without your work, I would never have come across these songs. Well, thank you. But it's, um, it's, it's of course, the work of all those wonderful people who uh, continue this tradition in Georgia that we really have to thank. Joan, thank you so much for our wonderful conversation. <laughs> well, thank you for inviting me and letting me speak so freely. <laughs> I appreciate it. And good luck with all the future podcasts. I think it's a very important uh, event, actually, to, to, that these are being recorded and that we're actually making something that will be useful for that forward bit of the continuum for the future, because I suppose we are the voice of ancestors, whether we like it or not. Thank you for listening to Voices of the Ancestors with Holly Taylor-Zuntz and Susan Thompson. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Joan Mills. If you'd like to continue the conversation with us, we've opened a Facebook group called Voices of the Ancestors Community. 
So you can join us there for discussions all about Georgian polyphonic songs. You can share videos and photos and stories and all sorts. Um, I'll put the link in the show notes. Or you could leave a comment on SoundCloud and start a conversation there. We read and appreciate every comment and like on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. It really makes our day. So please come and say hi on social media. We'd love to see you there. And again, if you want to hear the full conversation where Joan goes into more detail about her approach to voice teaching and she's got some great anecdotes about her theatre directing work, then go to ko-fi.com forward slash Voices of the Ancestors and sign up as a monthly subscriber from as little as £3 a month. But you can give us more if you feel so inclined. I have to say, we needed a lot of tea and coffee for this episode, so any one-off tips are much appreciated too, even if you don't want the unedited episode. If you'd like to buy a copy of 99 Georgian Songs and support the Garakanidze family, you can buy it on the CPR website, and I'll put a link in the show notes for that. By the way, the music you're listening to now is from Ioloni's new album, available on Bandcamp. And the other music in this episode was by Sakioba, Zetanze, TAB, and Joan's recording of Edisha, Joseph, and the CPR group. Bye for now. <laughs>